a reading from a letter to the Romans. Chapter 15, verse 4. For what things soever were written, were written for our learning, that through patience and the comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Hey, hey there. Welcome back to Catholic with a Zen Mind. That's right. The only podcast taking Catholic traditional teachings and Zen Buddhism, stacking them next to each other and uncovering the Zen within Catholicism. But today, that's not what we're doing. Cue the epic history music. Yes. Today, we're doing our first episode. of Catholic history. That's right. Catholic history. Now, some of you may have tuned in to an earlier episode where I had my cousin, uh, Rufus von Lichtenstein, Mike, (coughs) to some. I had him come on and we went over the history of Zen. It's probably probably about my longest episode that we've done so far. And it, uh, well, it was a good one. And we went over Zen. We didn't go into too much detail, because Zen is a little harder to go into detail than Catholic history is. Uh, you can go into detail with Zen, but it, it it starts getting into all of the specific ideologies uh, within Zen, or the specific philosophies, whatever you want to call them, the ways of being Zen. (laughs) Um, With Catholic history, there's a little bit more of a recorded timeline uh, that, well, that we can work with. Uh, So that's the plan. That's what we're going to do. I love this music. (laughs) I apologize if it's distracting, but I absolutely love it. So, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go over, for anyone who's not a Christian, we're going to start from the very beginning. And it's just going to kind of be me, Gavin. And I'm sure I might get one or two things wrong. It's not entirely out of the question, <laughs> or not, you know, not a possibility. So, for anyone who's not a Christian, Catholic uh, history is the same as any other Christian history. And if you don't know Christian history, well, there's a great book 
that I can recommend for you to pick up. You can find it in most any bookstores. Uh, well, if they haven't banned it yet. It's called the Bible. <laughs> and uh, me personally, I prefer the Dewey Rames because it is the uh, closest English translation to the Latin Vulgate. Uh, at least I believe it is. So I, I prefer the Dewey Rames, but if you just just you know make sure you do your research and look if uh, if you want a Catholic Bible, make sure you're getting you know a specific Catholic Bible, uh, New, Amer- New American, Dewey Rames, uh, Knox, uh, all all other kinds. Um, you know, depending on what kind of Bible you want, make sure you know what you're getting. But if it were me, I'd get the Dewey Rams. <laughs> so, basically, Jesus, uh, when he was around 30 years old, see, there's there's a large gap we have in Christian history from the uh, childhood of Jesus. Every, everyone knows Christmas, right? Christmas was when he was born. And then after he was born, there was a few other things that uh, happened. He was presented... Uh, at the temple uh, to Simeon who prophesied uh, to his uh, to, to Mary and then um, and then after that he was lost in the temple while Mary and Joseph searched for him during the feast or during a feast or a uh, pilgrimage trip to Jerusalem and uh well, he was in the temple in Jerusalem teaching everyone <laughs> while they were searching, and they couldn't find him. Eventually they found him, and that's where the famous words, don't you know I must be in my father's house. Uh, but really, other than that, there's not much more we know about Jesus' early life. Uh, th- there is some speculative uh, theories, is what I'm going to call them, that Jesus, uh, he went and practiced in the East under yogis and uh, Buddhist masters and Zen masters and all these other things. Now, I'm not going to say that <laughs> those are true or false either way. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we really have no proof to say otherwise. However, I, I could propose an alternate theory to that myself which is that being in the trade he was learning from his father see in 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 ancient jewish times he would have taken up uh joseph uh, saint joseph's trade as a card tecton which we mostly see it as a carpenter however tecton actually means more like tradesmen or craftsmen so he he would have been more than just a carpenter he would have known how to do many different things and he would have traveled all throughout you know and he would have traveled to the wealthiest places uh and i'm sure taking young jesus with him as a young apprentice so to speak on his work so and throughout his trips i'm sure Young Jesus was educated in many things, even though he didn't really have to be, but he was educated in many things and 
and he he learned many things talked to many different people and, and i'm sure at some point throughout their uh throughout his early life they came across you know early trade routes that connected probably to uh the far east to asia and, and india and so forth uh so that's my theory. It's a little bit more vague, <laughs> but it's 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 a little bit more believable, if you ask me, than um, than a young Jesus being taken to India to study under yogis, or taken to China to study under a, a Buddhist master or something. You know, I I don't know. I it. it Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I don't know, but I, I, I think it's highly unlikely. I think that Jesus being who Jesus was and what Zen masters and Buddhist masters and some yogis claim to be able to achieve, there could be some uh, confusion between the mannerisms and the teachings and how they reflect one another. They're very similar in some aspects, but in a lot of aspects they're not. And we can get into all that in a different episode. Today is the history of the church. <laughs> so uh, so when Jesus popped up, it was at the Jordan, you know, John the Baptist, uh, where he was baptized. And then after that, it, his ministry basically began not necessarily publicly he was still pretty much private but he went around and he began gathering his disciples and his 12 apostles um and uh, and as he's traveling around he's you know he might be performing small miracles in private healing people uh stuff like the f- with peter and the fish and cast your net over the side pulls up more fish than he's ever in his life pretty much (laughs) Uh, doing stuff like that so eventually he goes to a wedding with all of his disciples and his mom's there and mother Mary (laughs) and uh, they almost run out of wine and so our lady tells him help him out he's like tells his mother, he says, what is this concern? How does this affect me? You know, what, what is this, why? And, uh, he also tells her at one point, he says, my time has not yet come. And, uh, well, after that, she just kind of says, well, we'll see about that. And she turns to the, (laughs) she turns to the, uh, turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. And he proceeds to perform his first public miracle, changing the water into wine. And he goes on from there to do more public miracles, um, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, and the good news. For three years, uh, it culminates for three years, and it ends up uh, he comes to the city of Jerusalem and this is after he's made a, a pretty big name for himself in the Jewish world uh, 
He's known by the Sanhedrin, the high court of the temple, the temple priests. He's known by many, many Jews all across the uh, the whole region, you know. And so he he comes to Jerusalem, and everyone sees, and it's a big party when he comes in. It's it's they pull out all the stops. This is this is where Palm Sunday comes from in the Catholic traditional. Uh, church calendar um, it's part of our what you would call Holy Week celebration <laughs> kind of kicks it off as a matter of fact but so he, he he comes into the city and it's during the Passover celebration and, he, and this is where he has his last supper with his disciples this is where he uh drives out the money changers this is where he uh, t- says you know tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it and you know this is where he did a lot of the stuff that <laughs> actually got him in, tr- in trouble with the uh, I mean, shouldn't have gotten him in trouble he did nothing wrong but the high priests were, I guess you could say, a little jealous, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, well, they, they conspired to murder. That's exactly what happened. So, after his last supper, Jesus was betrayed by one of his very own apostles for money. Uh, if uh, if anyone's paying attention to the traditional Catholic news circles out there, you would almost think that the story of Judas selling out for ten pieces of silver is kind of uh, <laughs> indicative of uh, some specific bishops within the past few decades, and maybe even the current one that have been uh, kind of selling out with their payoffs from government uh, subsidies and such. Uh, anyways, back to the history. So he gets uh, sold out by one of his uh, apostles, one of his 12 apostles, and he gets arrested, gets tried by, like, four or five different people, some of them like two two or three times. <laughs> He's passed around a lot. And then eventually he comes back to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who really honestly doesn't see any crime that he has committed. So he, uh, he wants to let him go. And he tries to persuade the Jews to say, just let him go. But they instead wanted a criminal murderer named Barabbas, who was a revolutionary, uh, incited riots where people were murdered and killed, and so they released him instead. Great choice. <laughs> Psych. So, so what happened is Pilate said, fine. Have your way, but you, you do it 
my hands are clean. I have no part in this. So, away Jesus went, and the Romans, they, well, they flogged him, for better part. They scourged him. They took a, a whip that, if memory serves right, they took they, a whip that's called the Cat of Nine Tails. And the Cat of Nine Tails is a whip that has nine I guess you could call them tails, nine whips, one handle, nine whips, and each one has pieces of metal at, at the end of it and maybe even tied throughout the whip. This is caused, or this is designed to cause severe lacerations, and if done enough, for long enough, enough blood loss to kill. So our Lord was scourged <coughs> and uh, beaten. I mean, during his trials, he was spit on and punched in the face, and and that treatment continued. Uh, they made him carry his own cross. They took a crown of thorns, and I mean, we're not talking rosebush thorns either. We're talking thorns, thorns. <laughs> Thorn thorns, big thorns. Uh, they put a crown of thorns on his head, forcefully, I'm sure. Thorns that are deep enough to, to <laughs> I mean, resemble a small knife. Made him carry his own cross. And <clears throat> nailed him to a tree and well, crucified him. And then so after he was crucified, there one of his uh, followers who followed, followed him uh, under cover of night, I believe his name was Joseph of Arimathea, he came and, and got the... Uh, the body of Jesus taken down and put into a tomb. Now here is where we get to the actual starting point of the Christian faith. And that's the resurrection. The idea of uh, resurrection had already appeared in Judaism during uh, the second century BC. Christians, however, found their faith in resurrection given new clarity through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They first gave this voice to this faith in various brief formulas, such as we find in the epistle, the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and in accordance with the scriptures rose on the third day. The Acts of the Apostles pictures the church itself as only beginning with the Pentecostal explosion of the Spirit. That is, the event that occurred on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost shortly after the resurrection. 
when the first believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, who confirmed them in their faith and ignited in them a zeal to witness publicly and urge others to believe, repent, and be baptized. A small community of believers at Jerusalem was led by 12 men who were supposedly chosen by Jesus himself during his lifetime and were later named apostles. Their leader and spokesman, according to the Acts of the Apostles, was Peter, or Kephas in Greek. According to Paul, Peter was the first to see the risen Jesus, while Acts pictures him as the apostle who preaches the first sermon and works the first miracle. Two others who stand out at this period were John, who was closely associated with Peter in Acts, and James, who apparently succeeded Peter as the leader of the Jerusalem community after Peter departed to do missionary work. The story of how this tiny community of believers spread to many cities of the Roman Empire within less than a century is indeed a remarkable chapter in the history of humanity. In attempting to trace it here, we must realize that our sources are limited and that we must tolerate many gaps in our information. Still, it is possible to put together the basic story. We must keep in mind that the first apostles, well, they, they were all Jews, and so were their first converts. For a time, the church remained completely Jewish, a sect within Israel of those who believed in the resurrection of Jesus and regarded him as the promised Messiah, who was about to come again to definitively establish the reign of God. The new faith did not require did not require them to break with the temple or the law. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles emphasizes how faithful they were to daily prayer in the temple. Some Jewish leaders, notably the Sadducees, regarded the Christians as an alien group of nonconformists and wanted to suppress them, but the Jewish leaders were unable to because public opinion favored the Christians and admired their fervent piety and fidelity to Jewish customs. The spread of the church beyond Jerusalem occurred very gradually as the disciples carried their message to numerous Jewish communities scattered along the Mediterranean coast. At first, they confined their evangel evangelizing efforts to their fellow Jews, no doubt in conformity with the practice of Jesus himself, who said he had come to preach only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The first group to break with this custom were probably some Jewish dissidents with strong Hellenistic ties and unorthodox views on the Jewish temple worship. Their leader, Stephen, the deacon, was arrested and denounced by the Sanhedrin, to the Sanhedrin, for speaking against the temple. When questioned by the high priest, he launched into a, a polemic against his fellow Jews, whom he blasted as stubborn people with 
pagan hearts and pagan ears. Stephen was stoned to death, and his martyrdom triggered a general persecution. His followers sought refuge elsewhere and began to preach the gospel wherever they traveled. It was at Antioch that it seems that they took the revolutionary step that would have monumentous consequences for the spread of the church and the history of the world. Here, it seems, is where they first preached the gospel to the Gentiles and even baptized them. And that made the city the center of missionary work among the Gentiles. This kind of innovation no doubt sorely troubled many of the pious who found no room in their faith for the idea of a mission to the pagan Gentiles. At first they went along. Liberal attitude toward Gentile converts seemed to prevail in the church. They were not required to be circumcised or otherwise to observe the Jewish law. But as greater numbers of them began to stream into the church, misgivings were felt by the more traditional-minded, who demanded they be circumcised and made to obey the Jewish law. There was undoubtedly a fear that the church would be swamped by these Gentiles and lose its Jewish character. And so the church was plunged into its first great controversy, which shook it to its roots. At bottom, it was the question of whether it was going to remain an exclusively Jewish affair or stretch out to encompass all of humanity. Enter Saul of Tarsus, known by his Roman name as Paul. Now, it was Paul who stripped the gospel of much of its Jewish character and adapted it to appeal to all of humanity. And before we get into that, uh, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, shortly after the resurrection, he uh, he was a persecutor of many of the Christians. See, he was a devotee of the law. We'll read a little bit more about that exactly here in a minute, but he... <laughs> He murdered many Christians based on the fact that they were Christians and committing what he saw as a heresy. And eventually he had a great conversion. Um, Jesus appeared to him and he asked him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, knocked him off his horse, <laughs> made him blind, and then eventually he converted, and scales fell from his eyes once he was baptized. And he became the greatest evangelizer in the history of the church that we've ever known. <laughs> I actually have a bookend of an icon of St. Paul. holding a sword and the gospel. 
So Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, who was present at uh, Stephen the deacon's stoning. Paul, a zealous rabbi, who studied under a great teacher and was a figure of importance at the synagogues. Uh, Paul saw faith in Christ as a supreme ultimate and regarded the old law as unnecessary. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians began to sever ties at Eucharistic celebrations and meals. Peter even did so as well, even though he agreed with Paul, who in turn rebuked him publicly. Eventually, the issue of whether the Christians should, or the Jewish, the Gentiles should observe Jewish law to be Christians resulted in the Council of Jerusalem, the first Council of Jerusalem in suspected to be in about 49 A.D. Ultimately, Peter was in favor of freedom for the Gentiles. He's quoted as saying, quote, We believe that we are saved in the same way as they are, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. James, however, pronounced the verdict, Circumcision not required, for Gentiles. On the condition, certain Jewish customs were followed. Abstinence from any food offered in sacrifice to idols, illicit sexual intercourse was forbidden. Certain Jewish dietary restrictions were imposed, specifically those that forbade the taking of meat with blood still in it, as blood was regarded as the seat of life and belong to the Lord. And also, the meat of animals not killed by Jewish ritual was forbidden for consumption. Some quote-unquote traditional Jewish Christians remained and refused the council, troubling Paul and his churches. Their resistance was to no avail. The pillars of the church had been decided. The distinctive Jewish character it held was to be dropped for the, quote, church of all humanity, end quote, which is Catholic, um, translates out to be universal. <coughs> Actually, if you were... To look up the definition of Catholic, it would be something along the lines of it embraces a wide variety of things, uh, or all-embracing. Uh, but yeah, Paul, he, he, he wasted no time. He sought to bring the gospel to the world. So he traveled to Asia Minor and to Greece. He left congregation congregations in Iconium, Lystra, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and many more. He would start in the synagogues, 
and he would attempt to show the Jews the fulfillment of the scriptures within Christ. When they rejected and began to turn on him, he basically said, it's your life, fine, I'll teach the Gentiles, where he had more luck, and left churches where distinction between Gentile and Jew was of no importance, as happened at Corinth. His letters to fledgling communities show Paul as the first greatest in the ranks of shapers of church history. Thanks to the decision in Jerusalem, and thanks to Paul, the church spread with remarkable speed. By 59 AD, Paul felt he had exhausted all possibilities in the eastern Mediterranean and turned his sights to Spain, the oldest Roman province and the main center of Roman civilization in the western Mediterranean. But first, he traveled to Jerusalem to drop off donations he collected for the poor. He also hoped by visiting he could reach full agreement with the Jerusalem church on his next missionary mission <laughs> to preach the gospel to the world. He wrote his epistle to the Romans with this in mind, reflecting on law versus gospel and Paul's tremendous concern for the unity of the church. Quote, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. End quote. So he sought connection to Jerusalem, the birth of the church. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Paul was convinced, after some debate, to conduct a temple purification ceremony by James and the fellow elders to show reverence for the law. There, he was confronted by some Asian Jews for being a traitor and was run off, nearly endangering his life. He was, quote, rescued by the Roman Tribune and imprisoned to await trial. After two years in the garrison at Caesarea, he appealed to Nero, the emperor, and uh, that, that Nero's not not a good man. Uh, but he appeared. He appealed to Nero, the emperor, and was sent to Rome to await trial, detained under house arrest for another two years. Now there were, of course, more missionaries in the early church than just Paul, many whose experience or story no doubt resembles or closely parallels Paul. Unfortunately, we know very little about them. Even after Peter left Jerusalem, not much is known besides the unanimous tradition within the early church that he was martyred in Rome by Nero. Nero. 
second century legend is what we have for many of the other apostles as well. St. Thomas evangelized the Parthians, St. Andrew the Scythians, St. Bartholomew went as far as India and maybe southern Arabia, while Philip died at Hierapolis in Phrygia. We know for certain that many traveling missionaries passed through the Roman world, preaching the gospel with much success, so that by the end of the first century, Christianity had become well established there. The success of the spread of the gospel amongst Gentiles was the opposite to the gospel's fate among the Jews. Jewish Christians who tried to convert fellow Jews were met with hostility and rejection. Around A.D. 85, a formal anathema had been incorporated into the synagogue liturgy. And if you remember from uh, earlier episodes, I believe it was the Zen Mind episode I read, uh, what anathema was, and it's basically a curse. <laughs> uh, basically saying, let him go to hell. So they're saying that those anathemas were into the synagogue liturgies about Christian Jews or Jewish Christians. Uh, continuing on here, Gentile Christians denouncing Jews as, quote, stiff-necked apostates, end quote, deservedly punished by God when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. Eventually, rejection of Judaism became essential to Christian doctrine, and Judaism itself was made an apostasy, both made so by the epistle to the Hebrews. Eventually, the Jewish Christians slipped into oblivion, left alone, and unsupported. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we got for today for our first history episode. Um, you know, the rapid spread of the gospel among pagans and the Gentiles, it constituted the greatest religious revival in the history of man. I mean, how, how do you explain something like that, you know? It spread even more greatly than the gospel amongst the Jewish sect of Christians because of a, a feud of law versus gospel. Kind of almost remnant, reminiscent of uh, 
Catholics versus Protestants almost, right? <laughs> Not quite. Almost. But. Well, to answer the question exactly of how we explain. If we can answer the question. But if we can answer why the gospel spread farther amongst pagans. Well, we'll attempt to do that in the next episode of Catholic with a Zen Mind Tackles Catholic History. Until then, everybody, Zen hard or don't, pray harder, God bless, stay humble, and enjoy the music. <laughs>